Hi, this is Laura Hersher. I am your host at The Beagle Has Landed. Today, we are going to be, I'm very excited actually, to my guest, Catherine Page Harden, uh, here to talk about her book, The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. And I actually have been following uh, Page's work for a while, enough that I was excited. I can't ever remember actually a book about like, behavioral genetics being like, oh, I can't wait till this book comes out. But Paige Harden is professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Texas, where she leads the Developmental Behavior Genetics Lab and co-directs the Texas Twin Project. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the Huffington Post, among many others. Um, she is, as I said, the author of The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, described as a provocative and timely case for how the science of genetics can help create a more just and equal society. The book has received a great deal of attention, not all, but most of it positive and all of it respectful. Respectful, in fact, may not be an adequate word. In a recent New Yorker profile uh, of Paige, Gideon Lewis Krauss wrote in 2016, she began co-hosting an intro to psychology class from a soundstage. <laughs> <laughs> in the style of a morning show, and she and her colleague drank coffee from matching mugs that was live-streamed each semester to more than a 1,000 students. She couldn't cross the campus without being stopped for selfies. That is quite something, so I'm honored that you're here. <laughs> oh, you know, your listeners can't see how embarrassed I look right now, although you can, which is why you're Googling. And I will say for the record that I, I co-teach IntroPsych with... Sam Gosling, who um, gave Gideon all the dirt on our uh, our response from students. I think it's something about, especially before COVID, when all the classes went online, I think it's really something about interacting with someone through a screen. You know, they see us through a screen, and so it feels like a TV show. Um, and so, you know, and also UT is a massive school there's like 50,000 undergrads and so when we walk around the campus you know we we run into you know at this point we've had thousands of current or former students who are always running into someone and they've never seen us anywhere but through their their uh, phone screen or iPad screen so I think that's why they treat us a little bit like celebrities it's some sort of uh some sort of <laughs> weird response to the to the online education thing um but I'm so when embarrassed said- that Sam told, told them about that <laughs> When you said that you have thousands of former students, literally a chill ran down my spine. Because <laughs> I was envisioning trying to keep track of all those names. But of course, no, you don't really have obviously, to do that. Obviously, we don't. And, you know, and it's great fun because they're not all freshmen, but they're mostly freshmen. And so, you know, Intro Psych touches on it, so many different topics. And we get to really structure the class in terms of not just how do you think like a psychologist, but what information might you need to know to start being an adult person um and so we have a great deal of fun with it it's really a delight to teach to teach freshmen and to teach intro psych but it does have kind of a weird some weird ripple effects austin's not that big of a town relative to the number of former students i have at this point so so here's my attempt to add a summary of the thesis of the book which inspired all its attention you argue not controversially, that genes contribute not only to physical traits and disease susceptibility, but to where we end up in life, to our behaviors, our success, who we are. And perhaps more controversially, that polygenic scores can capture that genetic contribution. And finally, that this genetic information can be harnessed for progressive ends to make society more fair. And I think that is an outlier position because most progressives are extremely nervous about the use of genetic information and associate it with eugenics and discrimination. So do you think that's a fair summary? I think that's a fair summary. I think I would say with polygenic scores, imperfectly capture some of those genetic processes, although that's obviously a moving target, and capture it for some people, because as we know, genetics has been quite exclusionary in terms of who is represented in the studies. Um, so I generally, this is going to be my answer for a lot of things, which is I tend to be a, a not all or nothing thinker. It's not useless and it's not everything. Polygenic scores are a step in the right direction. Um, so with that caveat, I would say that that, that is actually a pretty good summary of the book's thesis. Right. 
So, and, 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 and fair to say that's very well laid out in, in the book, clearly, that your, your, uh, the, the limitations of, uh, for now and perhaps forever of polygenic scores. Hmm. Um, so the, the, the first part, the genetics is a huge part of who we are. So some of the coverage of the book, not really so much what's in it, but the coverage of the book set up sort of a straw man argument about this, that progressives don't want to believe it because it has a whiff of genetic determinism. But do you really think that anyone argues today that it's not true, that genetics is a huge part of what we are? I think that's such an interesting question. So I would say just if, if we're moving out, if we're not, if we're moving outside of academia, if we're just talking about, um, you know, lay samples of Americans, general samples of Americans, then I would say no. Um, most most Americans, if asked in surveys, think that genetics matters not just for for their physical traits, but also for their psychology, that it has some influence on them. Um, I talk about this study in the book by Emily Willoughby and her colleagues where they just asked people, how much do you think genetics influences a variety of traits and then compares the average estimate in the population, which is, you know, MTurk samples or university undergrads with um, published heritability estimates. And so I think that's pretty good evidence that, you know, most people in the U.S. think that genetics matters for our psychologies in ways that affect our our social outcomes. Um, and there's a new book that I don't cite in my book because it came out right around the same time. That's about genomic politics. And um, and I'm blanking for a moment on the author, which is um, unfortunate. Uh, um, but she finds that there's not really a big um, political ideology gap in attitudes towards genetics or the uses of genetics currently in America. So that might change. Obviously, we're in a time of political flux. So I think this, you know, sort of progressive versus right wing um, distinction is, a, you know, is a, is, a, is a little bit of a straw man or a little bit of a caricature, particularly when we were talking about um, samples of lay Americans. I do think you do, you find people within academia who um, seem to identify um, with very leftist politics who will kind of have this kind of knowing and unknowing about it. So they'll say, well, of course, genes make a difference. No one's denying that. Um, but then they will get very upset uh, about talking about genes influencing these things. Um, you know, so as you said, most of the dialogue about this has been respectful, um, but there have been a few outliers that I've said, you know, and I, I'll quote here, like, we literally hate you, <laughs> it was, right, which is pretty not subtle in terms of the response. And those types of responses have tended to be from people who um, identify um, as, as, as I would say, like a socialist or as communist as very left wing in their politics. Um, I think that's a very much an outlier. I think that's an extreme view and we shouldn't extrapolate too broadly from a few kind of very strong is, voices. But there is a but few there people. Is. Yeah. And there also is a stronger thing where anxiety about genetic essentialism creates a don't feed the trolls sort of argument, because if you believe that genes determine who you are, uh, uh, and let's cut to the chase, intelligence, that genes determine intelligence, then you can posit that genetic differences between races are fundamental and defining. And that's an argument you dismiss fairly, or you discuss and dismiss fairly early mm -hmm. in the book to be clear that um, we can talk about genetic differences and that they don't correspond with racial differences. So yeah. So, yeah. so I think there's a lot of um, there's kind of a lot of working assumptions built into that 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 sort of implicit, if it's not skepticism, suspicion or fear. And one assumption is that um, is that people don't already think that genetics matters for their lives. And so if scientists study it, if we talk about it, if we write a book about it. Um, there's a danger of calling attention or to something that people don't already know. We're kind of like opening Pandora's box you know, a little bit. Um, whereas I'm really coming from the perspective of taking seriously that most Americans already think that this is true. And so I'm not actually um, telling them much 
new information when I say that genetics matters for how your life goes. Um, what we haven't really done, I think, a very good job of as a scholarly community is is providing kind of meaning around that and that kind of interpretive framework around that knowledge. Um, but if you're coming from the idea that this is somehow something that people don't already know, um, then it does engender this yeah. kind of don't open Pandora's box suspicion. <laughs> you're putting it in there. You're putting it in their head. They yes, might, exactly. You know, yeah. I, right. Like I'm, I'm playing some sort of Promethean role of like yeah. bringing the fire down. And I'm like, no, the fire is already here. Um, yeah. People don't know how to think about it, how to use it, how to, con- how to, you know, I want to broaden their imagine, imaginations about how the tools could be used, but I'm not bringing them the tools for the first time. Um, and then I think the second issue is, you know, the, the, the question of, race and racialized differences and social outcomes is so bound up in people's intuitions with the idea of genes and with the idea of intelligence. Um, Even if it's not bound up scientifically at all, because as we know, you know, the genetic research on traits relevant for education has not been conducted outside of a small slice of the global world and the global genome um, and genetic differences don't fall neatly across racial lines. And so there's really a challenge um, that I have with this book, which is to say, you, you, you know, you think you know two things, that genetics matters and genetics is somehow wrapped up in race. And I'm going to tell you how you're right about one thing, but very wrong about another thing um, in order to get to thinking more clearly about how we can use this for good moving forward. And that really is asking a lot of the reader to kind of set aside maybe some of their um, premonitions about where the book is going and and follow me through my argument. I, I want to quote you on this, not really because I, I don't want to stand, stand this too long because there's so much to get to, but something that even my most regular list probably don't know about me is I'm an enormous Clueless fan. So I was very excited <laughs> about this. <laughs> excited about this passage from the book. I'm going to quote it verbatim. In the 1995 movie Clueless, the main character, Cher Horowitz, refers to one of her social rivals as a full-on Monet. It's like a painting, see? From far away, it's okay. But up close, it's a big old mess. The analysis of the genetic structure of human populations is a full-on Monet. Zoom out, and the pattern looks clear enough, with superpopulations corresponding to major continents. Zoom in closer, and you can still see the patterns, although they start to look muddier. So I like that. Both because it references the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and because, I find another clueless fan. So good. And because it makes the argument that race is not a proxy for genetics, not a good solid proxy for genetics, without trying to say that the um, that there are no differences between populations, which I which I think is 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 a point we often get to. And it almost feels insulting to non-academic people listen to us because they're like, I can see it. Like you're yeah. denying them what they see. And you have this other paragraph which I'm going to read. And I, I have to say, this is a ballsy thing to write. Maybe I should say it's an ovary. While I am skeptical of their priors about what future analyses of genomic data will find, meaning that it will find uh, associations between race and intelligence, you'd think that it won't find association between race and intelligence. I do agree with them on one point. People's moral commitments to racial equality are on shaky ground if they depend on exact genetic sameness across human populations. Consider, for example, Ibram X. Kendi's best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. In his chapter, Biology, Kendi insisted that a biological anti-racist was one who was expressing the idea that the races are meaningfully the same in their biology and that there are no genetic racial differences. So you're taking on some big game there yeah it's oh wow I mean I think you've you've really zeroed in on a passage that um I'm sure is sure to be controversial especially upon first reading or first hearing amongst your listeners and also really cuts to the heart of what I'm trying to do in this book which is dismantle the association we have in our minds between genetic, biological, and 
natural, inevitable, hierarchical, um, immutable. And it is that that association that if, you know, if something is correlated with our biology, if it's caused by our biology in any way, if we can see it in biological measures, you know, what the what the eugenesis of the 20th century did was create a narrative in which biology meant natural, meant inevitable, meant right, right? And this was this idea of naturalizing inequality. And the predominant response to that has been to emphasize sameness, biological sameness, right? And we see this in almost every aspect of um, how our social categories intersect with our biology, right? So we see this in terms of this is how, you know, the distribution of men and women, even if there are, sex, bi, you know, biological sex differences, the distributions overlap. Um, this is when Bill Clinton introduced the Human Genome Project. He tied these two ideas together. He said, you know, all humans are equal under the law and all humans are 99.9% .9 the same. And what I think is dangerous about that is that it 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 allows people to fight um, a moral and political equipment uh, commitment to a multiracial pluralistic democracy. It allows people to fight that moral commitment on purely empirical grounds in a fast-moving science where we don't know where things are going to go. Right? As soon as we create the space where we say equality equals sameness, then people who don't have those moral and political commitments can point, you know, are motivated to point to difference. Um, whereas I think that our commitments to social, moral, political equality need to be difference proof, right? Like there is no difference, biological, psychological, um, physiological, that justifies you living in a relation of hierarchy or deprivation relative to another person. Once we take that frame to how do we make our commitments difference proof, it doesn't really matter if the differences are biological or psychological or social or environmental. Um, and I think it takes some of the, you know, the, the poison out of uh you know, the the controversies that have attended genetic science for such a long time. Um, but those two ideas that difference is biological, even not even biologically determined, but like visible in our biology or biological measures at all, that difference is biological and that difference is hierarchical and inevitable and immutable are so tightly woven in our conversations about this, that when I say one thing, it's almost impossible for some people to not hear the other one, right? Um, and, it, and it actually leads you, I think, to, for some people, a pretty radical place to say, if we really said there's no biological or psychological difference that justifies this hierarchy, I think you end up with actually a fairly radical critique where I get to it later in the book to some aspects of our economy in the way that uh, we've made higher education central to our to our economy. Um, so that's true whether or not we're talking about biological differences between ancestry groups, between family members, within family. It's this dismantling of equality and sameness. How do we make equality not dependent on sameness? So a lot of people say, you know, uh, in terms of racial differences, don't worry, the science won't support it. And you're saying this, yeah, I agree with you, in many cases, the science will not support it. But even if the differences between who succeeds and who fails are genetic, uh, we have a duty to remediate, remediate it. Yeah. Uh, and I think by remediate, I think that means not just how can we make, um, you know, how can we make some people skilled in the exact same way that other people are? I think that's one way that people can think of remediation. Whereas mm -hmm. I think it's how do we change systems by which people who don't happen to have, by virtue of the environment, by virtue of biology, by virtue of just not being interested in it, have not do have less of the certain types of skills that are overly valued in American life today. 
um, how do we have a pluralistic opportunity structure such that regardless of your talent and skill, you see that that's valued and not just with lip service, but actually in your, you know, actually in the material conditions of your life that you are living out in your, in, in this economy. Um, yeah. So I, I'm very wary of any place in which you can think of a result that would make you feel like, um, you're, you're, you're the, like the sort of enemies of egalitarianism have sort of won the argument, right? That's we let's not fight moral and political battles on empirical grounds that are potentially losable, however unlikely that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does have a little bit of a sort of a genetic Marxism, you know, <laughs> people what they need, like yeah. purely Marxism, not like no, not like not like like. Soviet China, you know, like yeah, yeah, no, it's um, really funny. I and mean, people have noted that before, um, uh, you know, that I at the end of the book, I spent a lot of time in sort of like post World War II egalitarian political philosophy. John Rawls, um, I was influenced by the writings of Ronald Workin, although I don't talk about him very much in the book. Contemporary philosopher Elizabeth Anderson. Um, but many people have noted that um, I could have incorporated quite a bit more Marx probably <laughs> into the book. Dworkin, Taking Right Seriously, one of my favorite books of all time. Okay, so let's talk for a minute about polygenic scores. Uh, GWATs have established polygenic scores that are associated with educational attainment, success on standardized testing, likelihood of various good or bad life outcomes like longevity, drug abuse, abuse sorry, incarceration, mm-hmm. So you talk about how and why we should use this data. But first, you spend quite a bit of time making the case that the indexes are meaningful. Yeah. So you don't need to explain what polygenic scores are for this crowd. Congratulations. Or how to pronounce it. <laughs> but let's touch on a, a sort of a checklist of um, objections. So you already mentioned that they were built uh, mostly on you know, white Europeans and are not so transferable. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about the difference between using them within groups and between groups. Yeah. Polygenic score is much more meaningful within groups. I get, I get that. I think, I think my audience would get that. Uh, let me lead you also to talk about the second critique, which is that the effect sizes are very small. Yeah. You know, I think this is a really interesting thing, which is um, pops up a lot in this context, in part because social science genetics is so transdisciplinary. You know, there are people who are in the genetics community but don't have never studied humans. You know, they study worms or they study plants or they study um, uh, Drosophila and they look at the sorts of effect sizes where we're looking at R squareds of 10 to 15 percent and they think, how could this possibly be useful? And where I think their intuitions are failing them is a lack of familiarity with what social science effect sizes look like. Um, You know, we are, when we're studying (laughs) free range humans and really complicated life outcomes like education or psychological disorders or fertility behaviors, um, leaving genetics aside, we are almost always dealing with correlations in the 0.1 to 0.3 range. Um, a sociologist colleague of mine the other day posted a graph to Twitter, and he said, this is what a strong relationship in the social sciences looks like. And it's the relationship between education and wages. So more educated people have higher wages on average. People who have failed to graduate from high school are in the lowest wage occupations on average in the United States. What is the R squared of education predicting uh, variation in wages? And it is 16%, right? And that's not even the causal relationship, right? Because obviously education is also a signifier of other qualities that people have that might cause them to get higher wages on the job market, even if they hadn't gone to that extra year of school. Like an economist would say that the correlation is not the causal return to schooling. But yeah. Paige, what would the correlation be if you took academics out of it? 
<laughs> yeah. So, so the, the, place, the more education you have, the less money. Oh, you, you know, people yes, ask that, and he put yes. the jitter. He he highlighted the academics in his sample, and we definitely pull the the mean down. Down, <laughs> like, right? Yeah, that's we definitely that. are a drag on the system for sure. Um, yeah. uh, the Twitter so tag just is a little family complaining equal. in there, folks. Just a little <laughs> academic complaining in there. A lot of education. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so that's a 16% R squared of how much your wages are accounted for by educational attainment in the U.S. What is the most recent, the forthcoming educational attainment GWAS? What is that R squared? That's a 17% R squared, right? So apologetic score for education is, is associated with 17% of the variation in years of schooling. I think that if we are seeing that polygenic scores account for as much variation in schooling as education accounts in variation wages, which is a canonical social science relationship, right? I mean, um, we need to be taking it seriously. And this is why I find it very curious when people say, well, it's so low, there's of no relevance to policy, right? Imagine saying, well, the relationship between education and wages is only 16%. So like, we don't really need to pay attention to differences in people's schoolings when we're trying to understand differences in how much money they make or design policy around uh, income inequality. Like that would be wild, right? Like that would be an absolutely wild statement to make. And yet people turn around with that exact same effect size and say, this is too small for us to be thinking about this with policy. I think we can also think about, you know, the, the portability question. Uh, I think when people are especially coming from the, you know, the natural sciences background and they're thinking about genetics there. I think they're coming into it with this idea of I'm trying to find laws of nature. I'm trying to find causal relationships that are true, you know, across time and across place. Whereas a social scientist, if they're looking at the relationship between education and wages, they're thinking of that as, well, um, how does that depend on geography? How does that differ across racial groups? How does that differ between genders? You know, is this different? Um, has this relationship changed across birth cohorts? Like, what is the effect of some sort of exogenous shock, like an economic recession, right? So it is a relationship that's meaningful, despite being imperfectly portable. And that's how we should think of polygenic scores, is, um, you know, there's no law of nature that says regardless of your race or your gender or your historical cohort, that if you go to college an extra year, you're going to make, you know, X more dollars. Mm -hmm. And yet the relationship is meaningful at a population level. It tells us something about who is getting more and who is getting less of this basic good money, money in return for labor. Um, and that is the frame of reference that I think we need to be thinking about polygenic scores. It's not perfectly portable. It's not deterministic. And it's not useless any more than our other social science variables are useless. I, I think that covers my point three, which was I was going to say they're context dependent. Yes. So yeah. and very particularly. So it's somewhat true for things we might use. I mean, we, the genetic counseling yeah. world, that's what I'm identifying with there is, um, you know, like polygenic score for heart disease. Yeah, it, it's still context dependent because, you know, like somebody, uh, one generation goes up in Japan, one set of diet, and they move to America, horrible diet, and so the, the, their polygenic susceptibility to heart disease, the outcome still changed. But much more, I think, key for the sort of um, traits you're looking at, yes, uh, educational yes. success. I mean, we, you know, where you go away from things sort of hard associated with the ability to learn numeracy, uh, reading, memory, executive function, and you go to behavioral traits uh, like likability or, you know, truancy or aspiration. Yeah, or even behavior. just like wiggliness, right? I mean, I think about how I've seen I this like play, that out, <laughs> play out hmm. in my own children. You know, my children are, I would say, pretty equally matched in their ability to learn about numbers, right? Like if I do a math game at home, the kids are picking up on it. Um, my daughter is sitting there absolutely still listening to me. And my son is 
constantly moving and staring into space and fidgeting with his hands and doing all the classic ADHD child things. And that is an example of the ways in which our school systems privilege certain ways of being in the world that is not about, um, you know, some kind of uh, hard processing speed skill in any, any way. Um, it's about how do you move your body in space? What kind of motion does your body need? Um, and then you think about how schools are set up in terms of recess or just the physical space. If you have to sit in a chair versus you can sprawl on the mat while your teacher's talking, how much, um, you know, opportunity is there to move your body? And that's just one example. So when we're thinking about polygenic scores, we really have to think about what are all the embodied traits that could be oh, responded yeah. to differently by a school system such that I, uh, multiply over 16 years, some people have an advantage over others. I, uh, a very good friend of mine had a, a kid who um, was one of those just tremendous early talkers. Like we were all kind of in awe. Like I literally have this story where I was standing on a hillside with him and a bunch of other two-year-olds and a train went by in the great distance and all the children started jumping up and down and going, choo-choo, choo-choo, choo-choo. <laughs> and, and, and Jeffrey said, oh, look, there's the train to Yonkers. And I'm like, why are you so not normal? And uh, anyway, so this kid went to take his his uh, tests to get into various schools that they take at four, which is just absurd yeah. on the face of it. And he came back and he did very well, but somehow not as like over the top very well as the rest of us sort of onlookers thought he should do. And then there was one, so all of his scores were very high, and then there was one test piece of the test that he hadn't done so well and there was an asterisk next to it and at the bottom of the asterisk it said respondent was under the table for this portion of the exam (laughs) 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 it's just like okay this is more comment on testing four-year-olds than it's a comment on this particular child And I also just want to I mean that's such a great example because sometimes people are like you know why would we ever add genetic information to a research design when we can just test children and it's the it's the word just in that that always makes me think oh you've never actually tested a child right <laughs> you yeah. you know we we do a lot of cognitive testing in our lab and um you know in terms of giving you a very reliable indicator of what is a child's current level of executive functioning or visual spatial reasoning you know nothing beats a really good psychometrically sound test battery that also takes a ton of training and a ton of manpower and a ton of um time you know time um and so when we're thinking about what are what are things that are that are quick value adds to to social science studies um you know it's a heck of a lot easier to get someone to spit into a tube than to get a four-year-old <laughs> to sit still for a four-hour cognitive battery. You know, this summer we st- we started data collection post-COVID, which has been a you know kind of a kind of a ride, and we have not gotten all of our parents to return their parent surveys, but we've gotten 100% of our parents to return their DNA saliva samples. So, you know, I think this is a little bit what scares people, (laughs) scares people right there. And let me bring up, I'm going to move on to this, but let me bring up a couple of the things that I think you won't hear from the general public, but that's struck me um, about caveats on polygenic scores. One, you use the example of your, your kid. So I'm not, I'm not talking smack about your children. This is something that you bring up in the book. You talked about, um, about your son uh, having, issues learning to talk and it was much easier for your daughter and so on. I looked at that and I thought, you know, as a a geneticist, if that comes in and I have this mother's a psychology professor who got tenure at this like crazy early age and his daughters, I look at that and I don't think polygenic scores. I think limitation. I think of new mutations, insertion yeah. deletions, rare variants, rare yeah. events rather than yeah. common gene events. And uh, that's not captured. And, and so that's really not important when you're talking about population, when you're talking about difference between individuals. I mean, talking about difference between siblings. Uh, and I, I understand why you wouldn't go into that in the book because it's super complicated. And may, but but I, I do think it limits the, the value in those cases where you're differentiating in group differences. Yeah. 
I think that you're 100% right about that, especially when you're talking, you know, this is, we're back to, like, the, the limitation of R squared as an effect size, right? Like, a variance explained, obviously, is how big is the effect and how common is the effect. And um, right now, all of the research has obviously been focused on um, GWAS with SNP arrays, looking at, you know, at common variants. Um, you know, I think as people like UK Biobank, right, like they just um, released their, what was it, exome sequencing in X number of people. Um, you know, the book is very much a snapshot of the state of the science when I was writing it. So this is like 2018, 2000, 2019. And I think it would be really interesting. It will be very interesting to sort of revisit this even in two years and think about um, as there's more sequencing data, people are looking more often at rare variants. Um, people are looking at the PGS in terms of like a background moderator to identify the effects of rare variants. Um, what a similar type of book would focus on scientifically in just two years from now. So I think that's a pretty yeah. dynamic, a d- dynamically changing, rapidly changing thing. <laughs> I've said this before on this program, but like, welcome to the challenges of working in a field where five years ago is actually the middle ages, you know, they're like, yeah. back in the, back, remember back in the day, how we believed these things. And that turned out to be like 2012, like yeah. we're talking about it, like, like people believed in homunculuses and sperm. Yeah, or something, I know. Yeah. Well, it was such a challenge. I mean, I, this is, I think, why geneticists don't write. I mean, one of the many reasons why geneticists don't write books is the book, the book publication timeline is so much slower than the art, you know, putting something on bioarchive. And so if there's really a question if you're writing something in 2019, knowing that it's not coming out until 2021, how to pick how to describe the studies that are emblematic of a larger, more durable point that you think is still going to be relevant in two years or five years or 10 years. Because if you're trying to do like, here is a survey of the cutting edge research, you're bound to fail because it's it's all going to be outdated by the time the book comes out. Like on day one, it'll already be outdated. Right, right. So one more, one more thing. Um, GWAS, I'm sorry, polygenic scores. Yeah. Notable in my book for being meaningful in the tales and not very meaningful in the bottom. In the middle, yeah. Right. So the difference between the 20th percentile and the 60th percentile in most polygenic scores is, is, is really nothing. It's, 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 it's nothing that moves any dial. And the significant difference is in the tails, too. Um, so it's kind of a limitation on their utility, right, in sort of policy building and so on. So, We're not talking yeah. about most kids. Yeah. So this is the best a, this in the world. This is such an interesting question on two levels. So first of all, I think you're totally right. And there was just a really interesting pre preprint or maybe it was an eLife um, study that was looking at um, running various simulations on the possibility of using PGX for pre-implantation embryo screening and totally separate from the, you know, the the ethical policy conversation to have around that. They were simply saying that um, the strategy by which you use polygenic scores. So did you screen embryos by excluding from, from selection the highest or by automatic, by always selecting the lowest polygenic score? And what they found is that, um, the biggest effect got from focusing on embryos that had the lowest polygenic score versus just screening out. So they were very much in that, you know, this is most informative for individual people at the extremes. Um, you're also bringing up this question of what does it mean for something to be relevant for policy? And I think when people think about policy, they think about some sort of like personalized education or personalized intervention where you're going to select kids to receive something, um, you know, uh, on the basis of their genetic information. In which case, you're right. The polygenic score isn't that useful because you're missing when you're missing rare variants, too. It's not that informative for most of the distribution. You know, it's a wildly uncertain um, prognostication for any one individual person. Um, I think we need to think about what it means for something to be, quote unquote, useful for policy in a slightly different way. And we can build our intuitions around that by thinking about 
well, how do we use other social science variables that are not that informative in the middle that have R squares of 15%, um, but that are meaningful at the kind of population trend level? Like, how do we use information about child SES in policy, right? And that isn't about, oh, we need to predict this child is going to get this intervention and this child is going to get this intervention. We use it as a control variable. We use it to identify contacts that narrow income gaps, right? We use it as a variable that tells us not about the child, but about the environment and how the environment is affecting that child. Um, and, and so that's how we need to be thinking about polygenic scores as policy relevant. It is another social science variable. I think as a general rule, if someone proposes using a polygenic score for something, um, uh, it's kind of helpful to think about, would this proposal make sense if we substituted any other social science variable in its place, right? Like we're in a personalized education based on family income would like strike many people as sort of weird, right? We're going to figure out which school districts close income gaps, which school districts have the narrowest gaps, you know, in which school districts do poor children perform the best, in which school districts do low polygenic scores children perform the best. That's a much more sensible proposal given the information that is carried by the polygenic score currently. So we've landed, thank, thankfully, very, mm -hmm. in the second half of the book. This is sort of yeah. moving into the second half of the book where you say, like, okay, we, we've established that these things matter. How do we use it? What do we do? Um, and uh, one thing that case you make, which I, I, I found fascinating, is that you, if you believe that outcomes are driven by genetics as well as life events or conditions and things that happen to you, then you have to accept the idea that genetics is a form of luck. You talk a great deal about that, and, and, and this is what I found so fascinating. You point out that we are more inclined to credit certain forms of luck than other forms of luck. Yeah. So this is, I mean, the, the second half of the book, talking about genetics as luck, is really drawing on two traditions. And, and one is, as I said previously, this kind of post-World War II egalitarian philosophy, political philosophy, which was really focused on... Um, what does fairness look like? What is it? How do we make sense of it? In a world in which people are born with different life chances, right? And so Rawls, in his A Theory of Justice, most kind of famously talked about, um, you know, we have this social lottery, right? You're born to parents and they're rich or they're poor or they're alcoholics or they're not or they're, you know, you have no control over that. By the time you get to adulthood, you have the kind of the the accumulated legacy of that, both, you know, financial and in terms of in, their investments in your development. Um, but then he also talked about the what he said was the natural lottery. And obviously the titular metaphor of my book is really kind of a riff on this Rawlsian idea of a natural lottery. And, you know, he's really saying um you know, he, he, he has this argument in there where is if we, you know, if we're used to thinking about inequalities in people's life chances based on the social lottery as unfair, why would we think of inequalities due to the natural lottery as any more fair? You know, it's just as morally arbitrary. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, he's sort of proceeding with, OK, but then so what do we do with that? Like, how do we you know, how do we conceptualize fairness and justice given these, again, given that people's life chances at birth are not the same. Um, and then the other tradition that I'm pull pulling on here is more from the economics literature, which is just how do, how are people's intuitions about sharing and redistribution pushed when the role of luck is made more salient to them? So you can either have people, you know, watch other people do a task and you can make it really salient to them, their differences in effort, or you can make it really salient to them, their differences in luck. And people who are focused on the luck part of the equation are much more supportive of redistribution. Um, you can look at surveys where, um, you know, Americans who identify as supporters of President Trump are sort of global outliers in not thinking of income inequality as a problem. They're the least likely to say, 
um, really amongst any any people in high income countries that, you know, inequality is a problem or inequality is a problem to be fixed. Um, and they're also the least likely to say the differences in income are due to luck. Um, and this is a group of people who think that someone was operating a pedophile uh, out of a piece of and, 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 and that what you just said is still the craziest thing that they think <laughs> the craziest thing that they think is that is that yeah. inequality of income isn't the problem yeah that- so they don't think income inequality is a problem they're less likely than American liberals to say that um, income inequality is due to luck they're also less likely than American liberals and I think this surprises many people to say that income inequality is due to differences in um, in abilities that people are born with. So supporters of President Trump are less likely than his opponents to say that the rich are richer than the poor because they were born with certain abilities. And I think that is surprising to many listeners. Um, but even people who don't say that income inequality is a problem, if you put them in a situation in the lab where the role of luck is very salient to them, they still support redistribution. Um, so another way that I think that genetics can be quote unquote policy relevant is in order to have a policy, people need to think there's a problem for policy to fix, right? They need to think that there's a problem that needs a solution. And right now, Americans are not even in agreement that there is a problem, that inequality is a problem. And, you know, there, there are probably other ways to to nudge people that don't think that inequality is a problem towards supporting redistribution. But one of those ways that we have suggested from research and economics is by making the role of luck in inequality more salient to them. Um, So to the extent that you think that inequality is a problem and you want to fix on it, and we have research showing people very clearly, you did not, you know, my, my parents are evangelical Christians and they used to talk about um, differences between people in terms of like things that God passed out in heaven before we came to earth. And they, you know, my mom is very short. She's like not quite five feet tall. And she would always say, oh, I was in the bathroom when God was passing out height. And it was like their kind of sense of like, you know, you got stuff and I had nothing, you know, it's morally, morally arbitrary, like you can't take credit for it. And so I think in a politically fractured landscape, if we have something that we can push on, where, where we can show with the data, this is how the stuff that you just happen to be born with has shaped your life. When a big part of the population doesn't even think that inequality is a problem, but they are more likely to support redistribution when the role of luck is made salient, then I think that that's a productive avenue for us to push on. Yeah, that's interesting. So those athletes saying, I thank God for my talent. <laughs> We're on to something. <laughs> well, I talk about this in the book, you know, the, they work the, so hard, you know, like, you that, know, yeah. I talk about the basketball player, Sean Bradley, who's very tall and, and going back to your question, very tall, not because of a rare mutation, but because he has lots of common variants that are slightly height increasing, it appears. And he always talks about, I was so lucky, right? Um, you know, we live in a time in which um, the uh, most educated Americans poured so much opportunity and wealth um, and that that drumbeat of meritocracy has really I think created a culture in which people are very likely to say I earned it I deserved it I did well in school I worked hard Um, and I want to temper that by calling attention to the role of luck in people's lives particularly around education you do kind of take on meritocracy (laughs) I do really big thing to take on because, you know, it's obviously um, across the population, they're, 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 you'd, you'd have to squint really hard to think that people get what they deserve. There's, there's yeah. so much of people not getting what they deserve. There's so many things. Um, within a given very narrow band, people who start with all the same abilities and privileges go further based on Hard work, merit, like there, yeah, there, the, yeah. the, and it, it, it does. Uh, we are very reliant on this uh, value. Yeah. But yeah. you're sort of like, hey, zoom out. Meritocracy is not really a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we wouldn't want it to be a thing. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting that my book, you know, I started writing in 2018, came out in 2021, and that, and in that time, there was a spate of other books 
criticizing the idea of meritocracy, um, calling attention to its roots as a really just, you know, it was originally coined as a, as a word about a dystopia <laughs> and the ways in which it's corrosive, even for people who win, right? Like even for people who um, are succeeding by our standards of merit, how, you know, the myth of meritocracy or the tyranny of merit, those are just two books um, that have come out around the topic. To what extent this kind of, this, this overly narrow sense on, I, I always have to be striving and earning and competing that everything in life is a competition. And if I win it, then I, then I earned it. I deserved it. How, how corrosive that is to our common welfare. Um, and these, you know, the other two books that I'm talking about are not written by um, psychologists. They're not written by geneticists. They're coming at this topic from a very different angle, but arriving at a similar conclusion, which I think says something about where we are in terms of this rhetoric of meritocracy. I talk at the end of the book about obviously, you know, merit, the, the idea of merit can be instrumentally useful, right? Like you want pilots to be able to fly planes and surgeons right. to have good eyesight and be up, operate well. And how, you know, in, in the same way that I'm trying to separate um, genetic from natural, I'm trying to separate merit as this is instrumentally useful for society to select people to do things versus you earned it, you deserve it, Um uh, and those are difficult, also superior, difficult yeah. and inferior people. Yeah. Thing. So you, you make, so I, 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 I want to make sure to get time. This is so, so central. Yeah. You talk about creating a just social order requires anti-eugenics, not gene blindness. No, it's a, not, blindness, yeah, not yeah. gene blindness. Yeah. And so um, you have this, I called it a Goldilocks construct. We are like, <laughs> eugenicists, yeah. eugenicists give genes too much credit. Uh, progressives are nervous about giving any credit because of those eugenics and, and anti-eugenics is just right. You sort of go through a bunch of examples. Um, the first one about um, tracking students in high school for math classes and that uh, people on, on principle won't consider genetic information there. Uh, so you say the gene blind proposal would insist that research connecting genetics and mathematics shouldn't have been done at all. The eugenics proposal would be to use DNA tests to assign people to tracks. Both you're saying wrong headed approaches. Yeah. 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 So the language there is obviously indebted to um, someone who you, you you quoted me quoting earlier, which is Ibram Kendi's work, where he talks about, you know, anti-racism versus colorblindness. Right. And so. You know, his setup was if if a racist is thinking about this sort of inherent hierarchy between racial groups, um, someone coming along and saying, well, I don't see color. I don't see race. I judge everyone as an individual just allows the forces of racism to operate invisibly under the skies of neutrality. Right. And so he wrote his book about anti-racism and other people have used this phrase, too, obviously, about it's not saying we don't see race or we don't see color. It's thinking about what are the ways in which race could be used to oppress people and how do we not do that? How do we think about it? How do we, how do we di purposely dismantle that? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, within, I'll speak about my home field of psychology. You know, there are many researchers who are specifically interested in say the intergenerational transmission of things, right? Why do depressed moms have children with, elevated rates of conduct disorder? Why do um, uh, moms in poverty have children with different white matter uh, in by the age of three, right? They're interested in things in things they measure in parents and, and outcomes that they're measuring in kids. And they um, studiously tiptoe past mm -hmm. genetics. As a, as a possible explanation or mechanism for their results, as a source of data that needs to be, that could be incorporated into their research designs. Um, and that hurts the science. And so what I'm writing about in the last chapter is, you know, there's a bunch of ideas in the last chapter, but if 
you, if what you're worried about is eugenics, if you're, what you're worried about is the idea that some people are going to be stigmatized and impressed as genetically inferior and their reproductive autonomy messed with and, and abridged on the basis of that saying, I'm going to deliberately blind myself to genetic information, to genetic research tools. I'm going to pretend kind of quietly and tacitly that like, that's not even an option doesn't make genetic differences between people go away. It just makes your science worse, right? It just makes your job of finding the environmental levers for change that much harder. And it, the other, but the other thing is, I have a, yeah. a, a ter- term I use called gene washing, which is just this tendency of like when you have genetic information for it to wash out everything else. Yeah. And um, that's and a great that's, term. I, mean, I like that. Feel <laughs> <laughs> away. Uh, I'd be proud. Um, yeah, so, so, and then you have like, uh, Charles Murray who says that polygenic scores are pure, writing like, as opposed to, you know, IQ tests, which by the way, were his own holy grail back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, Now he says, oh, those are skewed by cultural bias, but, uh, genes don't care about your feelings. You know, genes identify native talent and you point out in the book that polygenic growth absolutely do capture non-genetic influences they, they capture do. them beautifully by the way yeah <laughs> they do i mean so they capture it both you know because um they capture kind of the long arm of human history right that genes are known randomly distributed across human populations and those differ in culture and geography and you know in histories of colonialism and oppression and um and so, but they also capture environmental influences within the, within the lifespan of a person, right? Like my, you know, think about your, your toddler friend who was the precocious talker, how differently adults treated him and responded to him, how many more enriched educational activities he got that were not for verbal things because everyone assumed he was the bright kid because he could talk more. We elicit things from our social environment both good and bad over the course of our lives. And so our our polygenic score is picking up on our DNA variants and everything about our environment that is systematically correlated with those DNA variants in the societies in which we're raised. Um, so they're they're not nurture free. For some people that's hugely frustrating. Like they're messy why would why would we be interested in this like kludgy thing that adds up information about a lot of DNA variants? And we don't know what they do mechanistically and it, it combines the environment. Um, but I think, you know, like a biologist's trash is often a social scientist's treasure. It is the messiness of it that makes it such an interesting tool to think about. OK, well, now we have a trail of breadcrumbs that's left by the genome that allows us to trace these transactions with the environment over the course of a child's development. How exciting is that? That's the science that I want to do. Right, right. That's really fascinating. I, I, I have to, I, I have to, I, I sort of want to get to the end, but I have to because of time, but I, I have to because of who my audience is pick up on this. This is going to be the least popular thing you said in the whole book for my people. <laughs> you, said, you trash Gina. You dressed Gina. You said you called <laughs> Gina largely irrelevant. Uh, you said Gina epitomizes a genome blind approach in that employers or insurers are prohibited from using genetic information. Decisions are to be made as if that information doesn't exist or poof, hasn't made to disappear. So I'm going to push back on that. Gina doesn't say it doesn't exist. It says some people can't have their hands on it. OK, so I think you're right about that. I will accept that correction. What I want to call attention to is the ways in which um, it's it's so partial, right? So to say, I mean, and it's partial in terms of the markets that it covers, you know, it's health insurance, but not, not like, say, like long-term disability care or auto insurance, but also in the sense of um, the ways in which people are currently excluded from healthcare on the basis of Things like being unemployed, things like living in a state that didn't take the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. And those things are in part, not determined by, but in part influenced by the outcome of the genetic lottery. So to say 
your health and your health insurance, your your private employer sponsored health insurer can't discriminate against you because of your DNA readout. But you can be excluded from the healthcare market entirely on the basis of your employment status, which is tied to your education level. Strikes me as very, very odd, right? Like if we really are taking seriously that we want people to be included regardless of their genotype, we are thinking about a much more broad and radically inclusive society than is the one created by uh, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Yeah, we are we are thinking of that. I, I mean, I feel yeah. like um, I sort of want to live in this world that you're describing. Like, I really <laughs> Good, do. I want to live there. I want to where people are accorded rights of what they need, and need alone is, is the measure. Um, it just feels like such a long way away from the world in which I do live. Yeah. And and I yeah. think that brings up that's the kind of the final issue that I wanted to talk about yeah. with you today. That brings up. The, the, the nervousness that I have because um, I don't feel uncomfortable about the ways in which you describe, like, wouldn't it be useful to use genetic information this way as a control to reduce confounding in our experiments, to eliminate uh, big expensive studies that turn out to be meaningless because they're entirely confounded uh, by genetic differences. I get it. Um, but, but do you feel safe that if we put an investment into this sort of testing, that that is in fact how it will get used. I think that's where a lot of people would feel nervous. I mean, I think that nervousness is appropriate. And I think that nervousness can't just stop at nervousness. Um, it has to go with what do we, what applications need policy and regulation? You know, so what applications are like employers can't ask for your credit score, right? Which is, you know, similar, which is that like your credit score exists and it still can screw up your life in lots of ways, but like your employer can ask for it. We're saying like, this is a particular market. This is a particular audience where it's too much of a bottleneck to employment to use this piece of information. Where, where are the places where it needs to be regulated? Um, and it's not just enough to think about what we don't want to do. We also have to think about what we do want to do, too. So, I, you know, there's no kind of like, you know, Pollyanna-ish magic wand here where I can say, oh, well, we're only going to use it for good things and we're not going to use it for bad things. Um, we obviously need to have a conversation about where is their where is our policy and regulation that needs to be put in place so it's not used in these particular contexts that we think are going to cause or entrench harm. Um, that still requires a conversation, right? right. And I think often, um, often, it, I mean, it's interesting talking about the book because sometimes I feel like people think that like. I'm the one like social science geneticists are the ones like over here, like grinding out the genetic information. If like I hadn't written a book about it, like it would have all gone away and would have never happened. And you know, that's not true, right? Like, you know, the explosion of the direct to consumer ancestry companies, the, the, the beginning of new NIH studies with genetic. I will go on record saying yeah. that's not true. It is not paid hard in grinding out all that <laughs> genetic information. Right? We are so, drowning in genetic yeah, data. We're yeah. drowning in genetic data and that's here and it's, it's not going away. Even if I had written a book that was like, it has to go away. It's not going away. Um, so what are we going to do about it? Uh, that's the, the let's, Let's deal with the problem as emergent and as and as, as happening now sure. is what let I'm me, trying I, to call attention to. I lied because I said that was the last question, but let me just switch <laughs> to, to, to a concrete thing. So yeah. right now, New York City is in the middle of a mayor election. The old mayor said we're getting rid of gifted and talented. Yeah. In the schools, the presumptive new mayor uh, says not so fast. I like gifted and talented. Um, so this seems like exactly up the alley of the sort of questions you're talking oh, about. It's so, I mean, it's so interesting because it, you're right. Like it, it's, that's a question that has nothing to do overtly with genetics, but what it does have to do is, um, you know, the allocation of what are currently scarce opportunities on the basis of what, and um, I have, since the book came out, um, become familiar with uh, the work of a law professor professor, 
he's now, he was my colleague at UT, but I didn't know him when he was at UT and now he's at UCLA, Joseph Fishkin, who's written about um, what he calls the anti-bottleneck principle. And he's basically like, when we think about structures that are good, there's structures in which there's, the bottlenecks are not too narrow, they're not too strictly gated, and there's not too few of them. And um, and then they don't, you know, and the bottlenecks don't intersect with kind of other structural inequities. So I think the problem that people are facing in New York is, you know, NYC gifted and talented is like exactly that, right? It's a bottleneck structure of a high stakes test when children are four that intersects with other structural inequities around race and around class. Um, at the same time, we also know that, you know, some forms of ability groupings are good for children's learning. And so the question comes to me that the, or where I arrive at is that the, the dichotomy, which is let's keep our current structure or get rid of gifted and talented entirely is a terrible choice, right? Like if we took as our first principles, how do we build a pluralistic opportunity structure where children can move flexibly in and out of different programs that doesn't accentuate racial inequities, but takes the the positive effects of ability grouping for some subjects seriously, we would end up with a school system that looks nothing like it currently does and nothing like it would look like after, you know, we got rid of GNT. It's a, it's a false choice. Um, you know, I often, this is a, a more general principle I come back to, which is like a good, a good society is in which you have lots of good choices and a bad one is when all your choices are shitty. And I feel like, you know, the NYC, GNT debate is like an example in which all the options are kind of shitty. Um, and that's a sign that people are not thinking, I think, broadly and flexibly enough about what are the fr- first principles of what we're trying to achieve here. Uh, well, a fascinating answer to somebody <laughs> who has, has a, a, a good little grandchild in New York City and might someday be facing these questions. Um, so, Still not solving the problem. What no, do we do? So no, I'm not no, but you know what? You know what? You're not even in New York City, so you should be. <laughs> so, uh, to my audience, I would like to tell you that this book, The Genetic Lottery: Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, will really, really be interesting uh, and is sophisticated about the uh, science in a way that it'll be meaningful and interesting at people at any level of expertise. So I uh, highly recommend that you read the whole book. It's, uh, it's very mind-opening. It's just a whole new way of looking at how genetics uh, might be used. And Paige, uh, thanks so much for, for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delightful interview. Thank you for not making me explain what a polygenic score is. I really appreciate it. And, you know, thank you for engaging with the book. I, I really appreciate it, Laura. This has been fantastic. And to the audience, take care, Uh, stay well. Uh, Thank you for, for joining us today.